Coming soon to a city near you, Vinitaly Roadshow. Have you ever wondered how to attend Vinitaly for free? Are you a wine trade professional interested in a sponsored trip to Vinitaly International Academy or Vinitaly, the wine and spirits exhibition? Coming soon to Princeton, New Jersey, Harlem, New York, and Chinatown in New York City, Cardiff in Wales, London in England, and Roost in Austria. We'll be giving away our new textbook, Italian Wine Unplugged 2.0. Find out more about these exciting events and for details on how to attend, go to liveshop.vinitaly.com. Limited spots available. Sign up now. We'll see you soon. Welcome to Wine, Food, and Travel with me, Mark Millen, on Italian Wine Podcast. I'm delighted to announce an important collaboration with Academy de Van Library, one of the world's most important wine book publishers, whose authors are amongst the most influential and entertaining in the world of wine writing today. These are writers who I have long admired, so it will be fascinating to chat with them and hear their stories. I hope you will join me. Welcome to Wine, Food, and Travel with me, Mark Millen, on Italian Wine Podcast. Today, it is my great pleasure to continue our special sub-series in collaboration with Academy de Van Library, one of the world's leading wine book publishers. My guest today is Fiona Morrison, MW, Master of Wine, owner of prestigious Bordeaux wine estates, wine merchant in Negociant, journalist and author. We're here today to chat about Fiona's book, Ten Great Wine Families, A Tour Through Europe, published in 2019 by Academy Duvan Library. Thank you so much for being my guest today, Fiona. How are you? I'm very well. It's my great pleasure. Thank you for having me. Not at all. Fiona, there are so many ways and directions from which to approach the subject of wine, looking at a country, a region, a wine estate, or wine through its culture and history. You have chosen instead to focus directly on the human aspect by telling the story of 10 exceptional families, in some cases families that have, been, that have created wine dynasties. So people and the decisions they have made over the course of generations, possibly as many as 30 generations, lies at the heart of your subject. Why is this human element such an important and fascinating element in the story of wine? I think that what people love to hear is behind the scenes. They love to find out what makes people tick, what drives people from generation on to generation, because running family companies in whatever business is very, very hard. And that really interested me. Luckily, because uh, my husband and I make a wine which is well-known, I'm sort of part of that club of wine families as well. So people trusted me and allowed me to stay with them, to go behind the scenes, and to really get on a personal level that most wine lovers probably don't see. Yes, actually, that is such a um, fascinating part of the of, of, of the book itself. And as you say, uniquely, one of the 10 chapters in this book is the story of your own family. As Hugh Johnson says in the foreword to the book, Fiona Morrison has written a book from a viewpoint no other writer, as far as I know, has ever possessed a seat at the heart of this action. 
She is a master of wine who belongs to one of Bordeaux's most successful families. Can you tell us a little bit about your family story, the Famille Tiampomp? I know its history dates back some 400 years, and wine is central to the story. Absolutely. The Famille Tiampomp is, or in, in Flemish, it's Tiampomp, because we live in Belgium, and we live in the Flemish part of Belgium, where the Tiampomp family, family have been very uh, much part of the history of Belgium, and especially the wine world. And we've been wine merchants for at least 200 years, although when the house was built over 400 years ago, beautiful ancient cellars, which we still use today, were constructed under the house. And like most Belgians, the fascination for wine came uh, very quickly, historically. Remember that Belgium was under the Burgundian, the Dukes of Burgundy, uh, who were known for good wine and good living. And in the 20th century, having been successful wine merchants and negociants, they decided to move into Bordeaux, the right bank of Bordeaux, and buy up vineyards, which of course were so cheap and so easy to buy. Everything, Bordeaux was absolutely on its knees. And the ability to buy up properties which the family have run and nurtured for so long, has uh, really kept the family going and uh, our fortunes rising until today. My husband and I have three individual estates, but the great family estate is called Vieux Chateau Seton. Okay, so that is such a fascinating story of European history. I I forgot that link between Burgundy and and, uh, um, and, and Belgium. Uh, so the Tinpont family has long specialized, as you say, in wines of the right bank, most notably Saint-Emilion and Pomerol. Why is this? And what is the special attraction of wines from here rather than, say, the Medoc? Well, of course, until Napoleon went to Spain uh, to, to invade Spain, there were no bridges across the Gironde or the Dordogne. So, in fact, the Medoc was a completely different country to the areas of Saint-Emilion or Pomerol. And all the wines from the right bank were shipped by canals to the northern uh, countries or northern states, so Flanders, uh, Holland, Switzerland, Germany. And Belgium, even today, is the number one importer of right bank wines, which is incredible for a tiny country whose population is about 11 million people. So that long-standing love for the wines of a right bank is purely geographical. And the wines in the Medoc, of course, had the ports of Bordeaux on their side of the rivers. And of course, all their wines were shipped by boat uh, to Britain, to the West Indies, to America, and, and elsewhere. What a fascinating uh, uh, explanation of how, how, how wine trade, wine commerce happens by, by geography, by bridges over rivers. Especially in the Middle Ages, of course. Yes, absolutely. Now, you've mentioned that the family own Vieux Chateau Sertin, and you also have Chateau Le Pain, uh, Chateau Leaf, and Chateau Le Pen in Pomerol, Chateau Leaf in, in Saint-Emilion, 
and Chateau Lettre in the Côte de Castillon. It's an incredibly important and prestigious portfolio. Would you say that as a winemaker and a master of wine, that there is a tin pont style, a character that runs through all your wines? I think we try and keep that, uh, absolutely. And what we love, and my husband is very, very strict about that, is really to keep things simple and easy and non-interventionist. As you know from anyone who, who enjoys cooking, it's sometimes much more difficult to make a dish of spaghetti con vongole with just simple ingredients rather than want to put a bit of chili in here or a bit of uh, spice in here or a bit more garlic or whatever. Keeping things simple is actually more complicated than it sounds. But that really is our leitmotif, is trust the grapes, trust what we know, guide the wines through the fermentation and aging process, and really not try and show the human hand at work too much, except to nurture it through to a very pure, very real expression of where the grapes are grown. Okay, well, that is a, a beautiful explanation of how you're really expressing the terroir and the grape varieties, and one grape in particular, the Merlot. Merlot gets a bad rap. There was a film in America called Sideways, which uh, was an absolute death knell to Merlot. In fact, when I go to the States, especially to California, and I say that we make a wine that is 100% Merlot, they say, oh, you poor things. Um, but Mellow, where we are, we treat it well. It doesn't do so well in heat or in drought. But vines do have memories. And if you've got deep roots, the vine will do its absolute best to nurture the fruit. First of all, the leaves and then the fruit. And if you make sure that you can trust it and give it some shade, even in the current situation of climate change, we do manage to produce beautiful, pure fruit with good freshness. Yes, and your wines indeed are considered among the greatest in the world. I think there's so many great wines in the world these days um, that it's, we try not to be put up on a pedestal or be regarded as iconic because I think that's one of the greatest things of a wine world today. There are such fabulous wines produced all around the world. Yes, indeed. And indeed, um, you talk about some of these wines in the book. Uh, as I say, one chapter is about your own family. How did you choose the other nine? What were your criteria? What elements for you make a great wine family? Well, it had to be a family. It had to be a, a real nuclear family where the children and the grandchildren had been part of the history um, of course, as you mentioned, when you have a conversation with uh, Lamberto Frescobaldi and he is the 30th generation, it sort of puts it right out in the uh, stratosphere. But it's also important to talk to a, a, to a family like, for example, Gaia, which had very simple peasant roots and uh, the fourth generation. But what an impact they've had on the wine world. So it was to look at families that were willing to talk to me, that I knew. I have to say that um, I knew all of the wine families before I wrote the book. And that trust and that insider look to me was very important, as we mentioned earlier, to get a look that no one else had written about. 
Yes. Also, what's important was the wine were well, wines were magical. They had to be good, and they had to have a resonance and a history about them on their own that came from the family nurturing. And the third point, which I think is very important, is there had to be a certain humility and a certain look to the future for future generations, and to set up companies today that would survive for the next few generations. Harvard Business School has this report that it does every year. They do a course for family companies, which is an amazing course. They predict that 80% of family businesses fail after between the second and third generation. 80%? Why? It's enormous. And it's, if, you read the, if you read the conclusion of the book, the statistics are, are there. And it's often the, the, the founder who builds, the second generation who consolidates, and the third generation who is just either totally intimidated or the financial side uh, just doesn't work for them and uh, it gets sold. And the wine world is littered, and I won't mention them because it's rather sad, but the wine world is littered by wine families where that has happened. Okay. So you've made a, a careful selection of, of families to include that meet those criteria. But I think above all, what I enjoy about the book is that these are people who, as you say, are friends, equals, people doing what you and your family are also doing. So there's a great intimacy that's part of the real appeal of the book, because as you say, you're giving, you're giving us an insider's view of a sense of shared passion and determination and common interest and knowledge. So it's, it's a very personal book in that sense as well. I did allow each of the families to read the chapter before it was published. But I do remember Lamberto Frescobaldi saying, you are very naughty, Fiona. Um, but he let it go, which was great because um, uh, really that's what's fun. You don't want sort of hagiographies or you don't need sure. uh, the tasting notes on the wine. You really want to know what makes people tick. And that meant a lot of very late conversations over a cognac or a grappa um, to really get people talking. And I also insisted to stay with families so that you really lived with them and, and saw them at, at, at the breakfast table and, you know, at night. So that side, as you said, that intimate side with their trust was to me what makes this book, a, you know, the key selling point of this book, really. Italian Wine Podcast. If you think you love wine as much as we do, then give us a like and a follow anywhere you get your pods. Okay. Now, I am puzzled by one thing, however, Fiona. Why is the book organized by seasons? What, for example, is autumnal about famille Tinpont, while famille Perrin is spring-like or Frescobaldi summer, Gaia winter. You can imagine trying to write a book within a year with 10 families who have very heavy agendas is a bit of a logistical nightmare. So it actually came together was when they were available. And uh, my own family, the Tianpon family, was actually quite difficult because 
they didn't necessarily need me to come and write their story for them. And they probably put up the most resistance at the beginning. But the publishers insisted that the Tiampon family was in there. And the best and the easiest way to do it was during the harvest. So that's what that, that's why we started there. But uh, we start with the um, with 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 Austria, and I loved the sort of scenes of uh, the, you know, the Danube and and the vineyards there. And uh, it was that was really the Knoll family was so uh, lovely. So I tried to use the season's atmosphere to encompass a bit the character of, of the families as well. Okay. Now, can we turn to the two chapters you've included about Italian wine dynasties? First, the Marchese de Frescobaldi, who you've already mentioned, this family with 800 years of history behind them. Though, as you point out, um, the hugely successful modern wine company that they've become is, is actually much more recent. Tell us about the Frescobaldi and why you consider them one of your great wine family. Well, first of all, the history is absolutely incredible. If you read any book about Italian history or Florence, the Frescobaldi is always mentioned. They were uh, musicians, composers, writers. They uh, commissioned Brunelleschi for the Dome of the Church of uh, Santo Spirito. They uh, helped Dante. They were bankers to a lot of European courts. In fact, one of the most incredible experiences for me was to be taken to one of their villas in the country and taken up to a remote tower, putting on white gloves and seeing the parchment, which was actually the document where the Frescobaldi family lent King Henry VIII the money so that he could divorce Catherine of Aragon, so that he could actually have a, uh, uh, the schism with the church, with the Catholic church. Wow, that's incredible. So you do not get, I don't think, such a rich and colourful history along with the wine. And of course, wine is so wrapped up in in culture and history and geography and everything. So it was very important, that. But I've known Lamberto for a very, very long time. We were sort of student, wine students at the same time. And uh, it was so important to talk about the living Frescobaldis and, as you said, how they've made their, their wine vineyards, which they owned for centuries, into a real lasting and important business which actually comprises some of the most incredible vineyards in uh, Tuscany, including the project, which I think is the most exciting of all, which is the wines from a, a penal colony, from a prison of an island called Godgona, which is just off the town of Pise. And that project was fabulous. And that shows what a very ancient family can do in modern times with such vision and daring. Yes, actually, that's fascinating to mention the Gorgona project, which has such an important social element to it as well, giving work and worth to prisoners on this remote um, penal colony virtually. Uh, it's, it's fascinating. But of course, the Frescobaldi have, as you say, estates throughout Tuscany producing wines that are uh, really representative of the region from Chianti Rufina, Nipozzano, to the fuller sort of Brunello di Montalcino from Castel Giocondo. And of course, there's a 
connection with that wonderful great Merlot as well. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, of course, the Merlot in Italy is Masetto. And uh, often we have tastings between Masetto and Lapin, both 100% Merlot grapes. And Lamberto studied wine at the University of California at Davis. So he fell in love with international grape varieties, so Cabernet and Merlot, and especially Merlot. It is not an easy grape, as we mentioned earlier, in a war, to grow in a warm, dry climate. But he grows it in two places, in Brunello, as you mentioned, and also um, down by the coast. And it thrives because he understands the grape. And he really gets a kick out of using international grape varieties. Perhaps it's a little less important today than it was 20 years ago, but it certainly, the Super Tuscan movement, really put Italian red wines on the map when there were still lingering ideas of Chianti in a flask, in a fiaschi, and, and, uh, and wines that were perhaps a bit too volatile. And so Merlot for Lambertus is the bridge between the old world and new, between the modern and the historic. And I think he and, of course, other families like, like Antonori and, and, and so many others have actually used that very well. And I think the, the international grapes have been great ambassadors for Tuscany, perhaps less now. But certainly 20, 30 years ago, they were. Yes, certainly. And such uh, different expressions, uh, 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 an international grape variety that really takes on that character that is wholly Tuscan. Mm-hmm. We had a most amazing tasting at the Enoteca Pinciori, where Giorgio actually bought out a bottle of Massetto and we had a bottle of Lapin. And we tasted the two wines with all sorts of different courses. And as you said, Mark, what was fascinating was once you got away from the sort of fruitiness of the Merlot, they both diverged off into their own worlds, which were quite different. So it's very hard to compare them. How fascinating. Now, Fiona, let's talk now about the second Italian chapter in your book, the Gaias in in Piedmont. Tell us a little bit about um, Angelo Gaia and why you chose the Gaia family as one of your 10 great wine families. And Angelo is an icon, something that I think he's sort of rather ignores or tries to ignore because he is so serious about quality and the research and the development and the trial and error that the family do for wine growing especially, but also towards a more biodynamic, natural approach without making any fuss, without really shouting out their organic credentials how much they have done to help the communities in Barbaresco and Barolo, which, of course, anyone listening to, to, to your podcast will know how on knees Piedmont was when Angelo Gaia started first making wines. I think the history is fabulous because it's a social history, it's a family history, it's obviously very historical. And that story about the rise of a family in very difficult circumstances, is a beautiful story with a very happy ending. And 
the generosity of the Gaia family, from uh, from Angelo and his wife to to the to the children, is super. And what I love about them is their love of simple things. I think one of the best spaghettis one can ever get is the little trattoria next door to the Torre de Barbaresco, if anyone goes and visits them. And it's a little it's a little cafe and it is just fabulous. And I discovered it with them. And the enthusiasm that they showed for simple things in life is just the same enthusiasm that they would show, perhaps even more, for a three-star Michelin restaurant that everyone was waiting two years to get into. We hope you've enjoyed this special sub-series in collaboration with Academy Devan Library. If you visit their website, academydevanlibrary.com, they are offering a discount of £5 on the purchase of books by the authors we've interviewed, including Oz Clark, Hugh Johnson, Fiona Morrison, Peter Vinding Dears, and Andrew Jefford. Just use the ADVL coupon code upon checkout with the code ITALIANWINE. That's all caps. Yes, I think you describe enjoying a plate of tallarine, those fine hand-cut noodles served so simply with a beautiful glass of barbaresco. And I think that that's also, I, I wanted to reveal a side of Gaia that perhaps people didn't see and I think need celebrating as well. Yes. I do think that Pierre Monte, I must say, is... We are absolutely the golden age of Piemonte at the moment. It's Italy's new Burgundy. And I think what is the expressions of, especially Nebbiolo, that have changed quite considerably, are absolutely beautiful. And I tasted recently the wines that are being made up in the Alta Lange. And I think they're going to be the wines of the future. And, and the Gaias were one of the first producers to invest up there. Yes, it, it's such a recent history, as you say. I think that's what's so fascinating. I mean, Barolo was a wine of the first king of Italy, Vittorio Emanuele II, but really the history of the renaissance of modern Barolo really goes back to the 80s, So, as, as does the story of wine in, in Tuscany. So that is such a fascinating element compared to, say, a region like Bordeaux. Incidentally, my first job in the wine business was importing fine Italian wines into America for a visionary importer in Chicago. And so I know a lot of these families from along from those times as well, from going way back. And I've seen how their wines have evolved and their fortunes have evolved. So it was very, very important for me to include those two producers and when you, you mentioned earlier how had I chosen the families, I wanted to also contrast and compare regions as well. Yes, that's it, it is such a contrast, uh, the story of Tuscany and Piedmont, but also the Frescobaldi family and the Gaia, two iconic families um, that are so important to the story of modern Italian wine. What, it, what is it, though, Fiona, about the Gaia style of Barbarescos that makes them so very exceptional, and in terms of sheer monetary value, so worthy of such premium prices. Well, I think we, I'd rather park for premium prices on the side, because I think that's more to do with marketing than quality. But what I love about their treatment of a Nebbiola grape 
is that they treat it with kid gloves and they are very soft in their macerations. Their work in the vineyards is exceptional. And it really is, fine wine is made in the vineyards and the work that they do in the vineyards is extraordinary. So there's an elegance. Um, Angelo has a great love for French wines. He speaks perfect French. In fact, the interviews were done in French. And he loves that Burgundian touch. And so from the very start, purity was very important. And trying to tame those somewhat rustic tannins, which they were 50 years ago, was very important to him. And he did it. He's done it. And I think when you taste a Gaia wines, wine, people are amazed about how easy it is to drink. Because people think sometimes that iconic wines should be meditated upon and thought upon. And sometimes they're rather distant and unapproachable. That is absolutely not the case with a, a Gaia Barbaresco. Well, Fiona... It has been such a pleasure speaking with you today, talking about your book, Ten Great Wine Families, published by Academy Devan Library. It's a beautiful edition, and I believe that listeners to uh, this podcast uh, are being offered a discount, so details can be found in the notes. I absolutely love the book, Fiona. You write beautifully, and it's such a fascinating and in intimate portrait the families who've long made some of the greatest wines in the world, including your own. So thank you so much for being my guest today. A real pleasure, Mark. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. And I hope to see you soon. Me too. Bye-bye. Bye. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of Wine, Food and Travel with me, Mark Millen, on Italian Wine Podcast. Please remember to like, share and subscribe right here or wherever you get your pods. Likewise, you can visit us at italianwinepodcast.com. Until next time, chin chin.